KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Many people were shocked recently when the governor of Florida arranged to have a group of asylum seekers sent to Martha's Vineyard in a stunt designed to attract attention in an election year and draw attention to immigration. And a stunt, amazingly, we have seen before. We wanted to learn more about the reverse freedom rides of the early 60s and the striking similarities with what we saw recently and how these two events are tied together. Our guest is Timothy Welbeck. He is director for the Center for Anti-Racism at Temple University, also a civil rights attorney. So to kind of set the table here for people who aren't familiar, kind of talk a little bit about what the original Freedom Rides were in the early 60s. What what were they all about? Sure. So CORE or Congress of Racial Equality and SNCC Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had a series of direct action campaigns that were challenging segregation and laws and Supreme Court decisions that were seeking to overturn segregation in that era. Uh, More particularly, there was a Supreme Court decision in the early 60s, 1960 to be more precise, is Boynton versus Virginia. And it was a continuation of a series of litigation that was happening at the Supreme Court level that was seeking to overturn segregation. The first of which um, in this, I guess, line was in 1947, there was a Supreme Court case, Morgan versus Virginia. Uh, In Morgan versus Virginia, the Supreme Court prohibited um, racial segregation and interstate travel. Um, Irene Morgan was attempting to ride, I believe, a Greyhound bus across state lines and and refused to um, sit in in the colored section. She was ultimately... um, brought up on charges of violating the state law that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, And then in 1960 with Boynton versus Virginia, the Supreme Court established that not only could the buses themselves not be segregated, but the whole nexus of interstate commerce, like the terminals and the facilities at the terminals could not be segregated either. So CORE and SNCC got together to challenge some of these provisions or at least to test them. And so they organized what they call the freedom rides that would ride throughout the rural South to test whether these facilities would actually allow them to use um, their various um, services. So like, could they sit at the lunch counters, for example? Could they use restrooms? Could they use water fountains, things like that? And so the plan was for them to conclude the Freedom Rides on the anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education on May 17th. But some of those plans were thwarted in Alabama when there were two attacks on the Freedom Riders, one in Birmingham and one in Anniston, Alabama. The buses were bombed and there were significant injuries. There's actually a really harrowing account of this in David Dennis's book, The Movement Made Us. David Dennis Jr. is a journalist and writer who was also the son of one of the leading members of CORE who organized these freedom rides, David Dennis Sr. Um, And so the book operates almost as a memoir to some degree where he recounts his involvement in this. And so in one of the chapters, they actually walk through the violence that that befell freedom riders in Aniston and and Birmingham. So in addition to the backlash kind of directly there with the violence, they're also 
is the backlash of what uh, I guess was turned at the time the reverse Freedom Riders, and it this is kind of the the core of our conversation here because we'll get to in a couple minutes how we just saw a very strong echo of it, but basically segregationists sent black people north on buses mm-hmm. and with promises of jobs that there would be places to stay and everything. Am I am I correct in that? Yes, you you nailed it. And so the reverse freedom rides were a direct response to the freedom rides. They're said to have been organized by a gentleman named George Singleman. He was a member of the Citizens Council particularly the chapter based in New Orleans. And you you said it exactly. The goal was to make a mockery of the freedom rides by sending Black people from the South to progressive cities, particularly New York. They duped the riders to get on the buses by saying that there were job opportunities for them when they arrived, but there were not job opportunities for them when they arrived, but instead there was press awaiting for them. And this was a means in which, according to the Citizens Council and Singleman, to draw attention to the issue. And they even talked about how, like, a lot of the Black people in the South were complaining about conditions. And it's kind of like, well, why don't you go somewhere where you're more desired types of things? And so, as you suggested, it's striking and it's parallels to what uh, is happening right now. And to that point, recently, the the governor of Florida organized it's still kind of fuzzy to me, but it, immigrants from Texas and there's all kinds of questions about how all this works and legality and stuff like that and sent them to Martha's Vineyard, you know, a very liberal area hmm. and promises of jobs, promises of places to stay, gave them fake brochures. I mean, really, this was not something thrown together at a meeting real quick like uh, it, it what was your reaction when you heard this and the the incredible echoes i don't even think is strong a word like it's almost a xerox of what we saw in the early 60s that is a great um reference point to say it's almost like a xerox and in many ways it's like like it said before by mark twain the past is prologue this is almost identical to the reverse freedom rides and that Governor DeSantis used state funds to lure migrants who were seeking asylum. So they were in the country legally. They were seeking asylum from Venezuela for the most part. And he transported them from Texas briefly to Florida, to Martha's Vineyard, and used an array of subterfuge. They, they came to these migrants and told them that there were jobs and, and housing, six months potentially of income for those who are eligible. And these are people who are desperate for opportunity and just the means in which to survive. And these people are um, put in a plane and then sent from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. And it has since blown up in Governor DeSantis's face because the people of Martha's Vineyard uh, rallied and responded favorably to these people. They welcomed them, particularly through um, the faith community there, there is a synagogue and a church that organized a lot of the response, a community center that did as well, that housed them until they could be transported to a place that could give them some of the services that they were looking for. Now there are all these questions hovering over DeSantis's head about why was he using state funds to transfer people from Texas to Martha's Vineyard? Is this an appropriate use of funds? 
the whole thing just in and of itself is cruel. But as you said, there's also a mirror image of what was done nearly 60 years ago um, in this country. And so to see it unfold like this again, it's just startling that we're retreating back to some of the same practices from before. I'm curious, how were the reverse freedom rides received? Was there backlash, I'm sure, in the segregationist press and stuff, they were hailed and and all. But overall, what was the reaction in the early 60s to, to what happened? So it really depended on who you ask. So prominent civil rights activists of the day and people at large generally were opposed to them. Again, just because of the spectacle of it all, it was cruel, it was demeaning, and it was playing upon the vulnerabilities of many people and also making a mockery of people who are just seeking to have a more equitable society. But there are many prominent figures in the South who celebrated it, very similar to what we're seeing now. Again, it's it's startling how similar these two episodes are. In the same way that Governor DeSantis is getting support from conservative news outlets and other Republican elected officials, there were people in the South who celebrated the reverse freedom rides and even participated in the mockery that they brought upon the original freedom rides. And then there are also people who responded and said that this is cruel, it's heinous, it's unjust, it's, it's cruel and callous. So the short answer is it, it depended on who you asked, but the responses fell along predictable lines. We need to take a break. We will have more with Timothy Welbeck right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. A Philadelphia dentist today was sentenced to 22 years in prison and fined $100,000. This was just unbelievable. You gotta understand the genius in Larry. Nobody was doing coke at this point. No one could believe that this highly educated, young, handsome man was this kingpin drug dealer. This is Wolves Among Us, the Larry Lavin story. A documentary podcast from C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Listen now on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back on KYW News Radio In-Depth, continuing our conversation with Timothy Welbeck. So the move of sending asylum seekers up to Martha's Vineyard, this comes at a time when we're seeing kind of a resurgence in white supremacy, at the very least people being much more comfortable talking about it openly. And this is also, it's reminiscent of something we've seen done in the past by segregationists. What does it say that we're seeing kind of the same playbook 60 years later? I think it says two things. I think one, it says just how um, weak a lot of the arguments are that they can't develop new strategies and ideas or even new rhetoric. But it also just shows just how susceptible um, just as a society people are to rhetoric that others, different people groups, marginalizes other people groups, so long as it amasses power for themselves. Um, Toni Morrison has a um, really interesting quote as it relates to this when she talks about Eastern Europeans coming to the United States and subsuming the identity of whiteness. And she talked about how in many ways, and Malcolm X made a similar comment that sometimes the first word or the second word they will learn in English is the N-word. And they didn't mean that in a literal sense, but more so what they were trying to convey is that very quickly, these people who were marginalized in their native places would come to realize that there is a totem pole 
of stratification in the United States. And the closer you could approximate yourself to this idea that we call whiteness and distance yourself from this idea that we call blackness, the more power and privilege that you can get in society. And very quickly, more and more people are, are seeking to get some proximity to this identity that has power. And with it, it needs to defend itself. James Baldwin talks about how our society needs people to fill the role of the N-word because it, it further establishes power imbalances and also affirms these fictitious notions that some people may ha have of themselves. And so ultimately white supremacy is a feeble ideology that plays to the most base instincts of people. It does not take very much then to stoke many of the fears and the anxiety that the ideology and the systems that it produces has. And so um, with that said, yes, you're right. It's a simple playbook and we see it play out in our modern lives um, regularly, particularly around election cycles. But um, we also see it too when there's an appearance that white people are losing some form of power. And so if there are gains that are made either in reality or by perception by people of color, then we often will see the same playbook reemerge as well. And so it's unfortunate, but we need to continue to call attention to it. We need outlets like this to call attention to it and just to make some of these connections for people who may be unaware or may have forgotten just how predictable a lot of this is. Another thing that that's kind of interesting and, and talking about, you mentioned earlier, a lot of the weak arguments, mm -hmm. these were asylum seekers. And as I understand it, a lot of them coming from Venezuela, a country which is in very difficult days as a result of socialism. Yes. Many on the right in the U.S. have thrown the socialism word around yes, that that's what everybody on the left wants. They want socialism. So here you have people trying to escape socialism being used as political props by people in the U.S., who claim to hate socialism, when you would think they would welcome these people because they are being oppressed by what these people claim to be against. Yeah, that, that's so true. And even the socialist argument, too, is a dog whistle in a lot of ways, because many of the same people who publicly decry socialism will embrace it in other ways, whether it's government assistance for large corporations or tax breaks for the wealthiest of society or other government benefits that they can accrue for themselves, but may be denied to others. And so you're right. On the one hand, if socialism is so bad and people are fleeing a socialist nation as having these compounding issues, you should welcome them in the hopes that maybe it shines a light on the difference in the nation. It just shows the irrationality of it all. Uh, Mark Lamont Hill mentioned that when he talked about the irrationality of white supremacy, particularly how it played out during slavery, the idea is that, for example, Black people are said to be lazy. Well, if they're lazy, why are you why are you using them as your workforce? Or Black people are barbaric and animalistic. Well, then why would you have them watch your children and sometimes even nurse your children? Or Black people are dirty, but you would have them clean your house. Like there's so many glaring contradictions um, that emerge, whether it's these examples from Dr. Hill or these examples that you presented. And you kind of referenced this and talked about this earlier. And 
a lot of this gets lost in the in conversations uh, that turn into political arguments that that turn into intellectual exercises. These asylum seekers are people. Yes, their lives. They have families. They've probably gone through hell already, and maybe a lot of these people, for the first time in a long time, thought they could exhale and thought things are going to get better. And they were taken well care of in Martha's Vineyard and all. But to kind of have what you thought was happening and get slapped in the face, like that is a level of cruelty and depravity that, uh, unfortunately, I don't think shocks enough people. I completely agree. And, and I think that's what we should be focused on throughout the course of this conversation. Just as you said, these are people fleeing the most dire of straits and the most desperate of circumstances. And here they are tricked again. The New York Times has an article that they published, I believe it was yesterday, that was talking about this whole story. And they did some research trying to pull together just how this all came about. And they interviewed one of these migrants. And one of the things he said was, we were tricked in Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Mexico, and then in the United States. And so, like you said, to be trying to, to just take care of themselves and their family and to be lied to, to be tricked, to, use, to be used as political pawns, it should distress us. It should, it should break our hearts and it should compel us to want more for what our nation and what our states are doing to people. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.